Well, if last week's parable about a dishonest manager was difficult, the story Jesus tells us this week is equally, if not more, challenging. Picking up with the theme of stewardship as going all in with God and remembering that image of keeping a part of ourselves dry from the baptism of the Spirit. How does this parable help us understand what Jesus means about being faithful stewards with what we have and who we are as individuals and as a congregation? This is a parable of extremes. The way Jesus tells it, the unnamed rich man has all the stereotypical trappings of wealth, described by what he wears, what he eats, and how much he eats, and where he lives. The poor man, named Lazarus, is also described with stereotypical depictions of being poor, thin, hungry, and weak from malnutrition, unclean because of untreated illness, and whose only company, unclean company, are the dogs, who are only attracted to him because of his open wounds. This is a story meant to shock us, meant to give us a face like this. It's, it's too much to hear, but it's the point Jesus wants to make, to be bothered by the grossness of poverty and the grossness of wealth. Jesus tells it in such a way that we want to do something about it. And that's just Jesus' way of hooking us in to tell us a story that is urgent. Things that are urgently in need of our attention. We often avoid them. But stories, and Jesus was a master at this, stories have a way of coming around through the back door and hooking us into what happens. So on its face, this parable is one about wealth. Jesus had a great deal to say about wealth in the Gospels, and none of it is pretty or comfortable for our first world American lifestyles or the economics that prop up the American dream. That's why I love the quote in the bulletin by Rilke. Who is this Christ who interferes in everything? It was in there last week. I'm probably going to leave it in for a few more weeks because I just can't let that question go because it won't let me go. That quote points to our challenge as 21st century Christians to put all that we have and all that we are and all that we think ourselves to be into the waters of God's transformation, to get all wet in the Spirit. Because the heart of stewardship is remembering we are created in the image of a God who went all in with us and for us. And it calls us to act on that remembering. When we miss that mark, when we forget that's what we're supposed to do, a call from anyone, including Jesus, to return to the teachings of Moses and the prophets, to remember we're created to be in relationship with God and each other, 
and to take responsibility for our actions and choices. That call can sound like interference because really it hurts to see what God wants us to see. To see is to risk the vulnerability of relationship, of kinship, of solidarity. To see is to put aside forever our own questions of worthiness and recognize in the wounded and bleeding other our own face, our own fractured dignity, our own pain, our own mortality. To see as Jesus sees is to put ourselves fully into the stories of others, their hunger, their illness, their terror, and their shame. But let's bring it back to the parable. To see Lazarus, the rich man needs to recognize his own complicity in the poor man's suffering. He needs to admit that his own inability to say, I have enough. In fact, I have more than enough. I have more than enough to share. His inability to say that is directly responsible for Lazarus's poverty. And to push it even further, the rich man needs to understand that his incapacity to grieve and to rage that Lazarus is in the condition he's in is a sign of his own impoverishment. An impoverishment so total that no amount of linen or purple cloth or fancy food can remedy it. This is radical seeing. It's the kind of bold, courageous, sacrificial seeing that scares us to death precisely because it asks so much of us. Who is this Christ who keeps interfering with our plans and our relationships, our vision for ourselves and the desires of our hearts? Jesus calls us to this radical seeing as he adds another layer to this story. If it hasn't gotten under our skin yet, Jesus adds another layer. Because even after death, the rich man fails to see Lazarus. Privilege just plain clings to him, even in Hades. And though he piously calls on Father Abraham, he refuses to see Lazarus as anything more than an errand boy. Bring me water. Go warn my brothers. Do things for me. No wonder Abraham told him that the chasm separating these two realms is too great to cross. Because I don't think God's the one who put the chasm there. The rich man did that all by himself. And don't we do that? all by ourselves. Because I don't think this chasm was only there in death. It was present in the lives of the rich man and Lazarus. And it was only as wide as the rich man's gate. It was only symbolized by the empty chairs around the banquet table, laden with too much food 
for one person. It symbolized that in life, the rich man knew Lazarus by name, but allowed him to remain on his doorstep with the dogs. In death, the rich man said that even his brothers would also recognize Lazarus if Abraham would allow Lazarus to appear to them as a warning, which means there were at least five other people whose lifestyles were built on choices and actions that did not see the Lazaruses of the world as mattering to the lives of those who had the wealth, who did not see that all things are connected. And so, this is the scary part of the story, Abraham wouldn't allow it. He would not allow that chasm to be crossed. He said the rich man and his brothers, they had ample opportunities to see Lazarus in life and to see how the teachings of Moses and the prophets instructed those who have much to care for those who have little. And if the authority of tradition and the scriptures weren't enough to prick their hearts, seeing a dead man walking wouldn't change a thing. Yikes. The heart of stewardship is to recognize we are responsible to care for each other, to care about each other, to see each other as real, to declare that what happens to me matters to you, and what happens to you matters to me. But this is not a new thing. I think that was Jesus' point. Jesus didn't make this up. He says, go back to Moses. Go back to the prophets. It's all there in the stories that have shaped the identity of a people since in the beginning. And so some of the teachings of Moses are things like this, when he declared on the doorstep between the wilderness and the promised land, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien, the immigrant, you shall not defraud your neighbor. You shall not steal. You shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. You shall not revile the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And some of the teachings from the prophets, you heard the choir sing one of those teachings, and another one from the prophet Isaiah spoke about what it looks like to be all in with God, describing the fast that God chooses, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not hide yourself from your own kin. When that happens, Isaiah says, God shows up for anyone willing to call for help because this fast that God chooses is too much and too important for one person or one group to keep on their own. God shows up and says, 
here I am. Let's keep getting to work. Jesus was brought up on Moses and the prophets. And he told this story to people who shared that same upbringing. Jesus came to the world as the embodiment of God going all in with humanity and creation. Crossing the great chasms we create to show us and invite us into another way to live. Into the heart of faithfully loving God and caring for our neighbors. To spin Micah's question, what else do we require? We have Moses. We have the prophets. We have the parables. We have the life and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. Like the rich man in the parable, we have everything we need in order to repent, find grace, and offer healing in the world. So what does all this mean? It means we are without excuse as long as we stand inside the gate, holding aloft the parts of ourselves we want to keep separate from Christ's interference and invitation into the heart of stewardship. So, what will we do about it? What will we do next? Where will our gaze linger? What and who will we dare to see? Amen.